0: Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Sean. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening?
1: Sure. Uh, Good afternoon. My name is Sean Canuck. Uh, Spent some time in the U.S. intelligence community. I'm an international lawyer by training and uh, even taught uh, adjunct classes at a law school on covert action. So I'm happy to discuss this topic with you today.
0: Can we talk about a little bit about covert action through my research until like the 60s and 70s? I've been coming across a lot of the intelligence agencies and like what some covert action stuff is, but I would like to define what actually your definition of covert action is. And then maybe we can go into some examples as well, too. Um, cause I've, like I said, I've tried, I'm very focused into like the sixties and seventies cause of the Kennedy stuff. We don't have to talk about Kennedy, but I'm interested in covert action. I've never really came across that word before. So learning about it, you start coming across a lot.
1: Okay, certainly. Uh, well, first off as well, I have studied some military history and, you know, international law through the centuries, but my 20th century history is not my strongest point. So, uh, second half of 20th century, whether we're talking about Cuba, Vietnam, or JFK, those things, I'm obviously aware of them as an informed citizen, but I can't pretend to be a uh, expert historian in those topics. But what I can do for you is address your question about what is covert action. Uh, And it's not gonna be my definition, I simply use and employ the definition that we have in U.S. federal law. And there's two sources you really wanna look to. The first is gonna be Title 50, Section 3093 of the U.S. Code. That's the federal law that governs our country in, in its written format. And then there's also an executive order, uh, number 12333, 3, 3, which dates back, I believe, to the 80s originally. Don't quote me on this, but I think it goes back to the Reagan years, if not before. Uh, and it's been amended over time, multiple times by different presidencies. But that's, of course, a, uh, a form of administrative law promulgated by the executive branch, the president uh, himself. Uh, in an executive order. So those are pretty much the two primary sources that are most relevant for defining this. You can look at things like war powers resolution and other laws uh, that would have some play. But the real essence and crux of what covert action is, is it's a U.S. government, military, paramilitary, or intelligence activity that is intended to not be attributable to the United States government literally what the word covert means. We're taking some action and we want to keep it covert, obscure, hide, and if necessary, deny the role of the U.S. government in that activity. And I would distinguish that from the term clandestine, where a lot of our intelligence activities and some of our government special forces, military activities are often clandestine, right? What does that mean? That means we try to maintain the secrecy of those events certainly up through the operation and its successful conclusion and the extraction or uh, escape of the U.S. government personnel conducting them. Uh, but down the road, if those actions were to be attributed to the United States government or the United States military, we would actually acknowledge it, okay, if we chose to. Covert action, you never intend to say that the U.S. government did it. So I can think of a couple examples, right? Uh and these are maybe interesting things to discuss. They're more recent than the events you were talking about in the 20th century. But, you know, we had uh, you know, the operation to capture, or ultimately what happened, kill Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, right? We did that with US government special operations personnel. And the president of the United States, after the operation was completed, announced it to the world and showed the U.S. government hand that had conducted it. In a proper covert action, the president would never make a comment like that.
0: Does that fall under clandestine then? If it's not – I mean it might be a covert action mission, but if you're announcing it after the duty is done, you kept it secret though the whole time.
1: Right, and again, I don't – I personally would not call the Osama bin Laden raid a covert action. I would call it a clandestine special, op, special forces operation. Right, We wanted to keep it secret until we had successfully completed it, but then we announced to the world that we had done it. That is not a covert action. That is a clandestine special operation, which you maintained the operational security so that you could be successful in the mission.
0: Do you think that what he did announcing that – I mean do you understand why he did it or do you have – Maybe some misjudgments about – I don't know whether it was right or not. I mean it is a dangerous thing to announce, but I also feel like Osama bin Laden is a name that comes up in the history books for a very serious event. So I feel like at that point, you know, either it's the attribution to Obama for saying we got him, but I just feel like it's something for the American people, kind of like a morale thing as well too.
1: Yeah, again, the he you're talking about in, in your question, I assume that's President Obama you're referring to. Why did he announce it? Uh, and I think the seizure or uh, extermination of Osama bin Laden was a key element of the global war on terrorism, which lasted through a couple of presidencies, right? We had a national effort uh, sanctioned and approved by Congress after the September 11, 2001 attacks. Uh, it was a little bit of an unusual war in that we were not fighting a single sovereign in a defined territory. We certainly went after the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. but We pursued those uh, non state actors or those transnational actors uh, in a range of different countries around the world to limit their ability to continue perpetrating terrorist activities against the US and other countries. So, if you accept that we were in a war, and again, a slightly non traditional war against enemy combatants, then announcing or acknowledging that you had captured or killed the leader of the opposing forces would be something fairly standard in international relations. So I actually was not the least bit surprised that it was announced after the fact. Of course, I you wouldn't announce it before the fact, you would have alerted your target. But announcing it after the fact, actually in that sense made a lot of uh, sense. It told the world that the leader of the opposing entity had been removed from his role, hopefully thereby decreasing the morale and the will to fight of his own uh, supporters. And as you say, providing that moral support and update on the conduct of hostilities by the U.S.'s own forces.
0: Now, with covert action, I know it's to never be announced that the U.S. had any involvement, but is that because of that it could be so impactful that there could be re- repercussions later? Like you could still be like attacked if it's a serious issue, or is it just a name of like trying to, I don't know, manip- I wouldn't say manipulate, but I mean, I, in a way, it's kind of like you're on. Un- it's like kind of like Pro, for instance. I mean, that could technically be – I wouldn't call it a clandestine thing because they – well, they did admit to it later. But covert action, as in they were – didn't really want to be caught by it. The FBI was invading the Black Panther Party, KKK, all these domestic groups, thinking that they were trying to stop a problem early because they realized that this could turn into a hostile situation.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, again, the covert action, the intent is to not reveal – the US government's role in that activity. So you see this with, you know, foreign influence operations where it's something you don't want to pursue through normal diplomatic channels. You don't want to pursue it through acts of aggression or armed hostilities through your military forces and it's something you, you know, it may go beyond a standard intelligence collection operation. So the purpose is to accomplish a foreign policy objective and you don't want to show that the U.S. government is doing it probably for two reasons. One, you don't want to show that you are meddling or influencing the internal affairs of another state, whether they're economic or political. Uh, and you also might not want to reveal the means and methods by which you pursue those types of covert actions. right? And you may be, imagine you're doing something where you have contractors or third parties that you've hired so that you don't show the government hand in it. Right? whether it's for the financing or the actual activities. Well, you don't want to announce this and reveal that, oh, these people who were doing items X and Y were actually working at the behest of the US government because then you have compromised their ability to be useful resources in the future. So uh, again, I'd say it's either because you want to conceal the foreign policy objective you're pursuing and conceal that it's a US government foreign policy objective, And you probably also want to conceal the means and methods by which you're pursuing it, at least to some degree.
0: Now, to those like from an ethics standpoint, I mean, is there an ethics committee that kind of looks at what these types of covert and types of strategies are to see if there's anything that's unethical about certain things? I mean, I'm sure you had to come across in your just looking at it being like this one's like oh god i don't know how i can like i don't necessarily agree with that one but okay i mean i'm trying to see it from a balanced point of view and i notice a lot of my generation a lot of people that talk about especially like i wouldn't say left kind of i'm not out of the i'm apolitical i don't want to get into the left or right type deal, but I start noticing that everyone's very, very critical and like, there's no excuse for this and this and this. And then talking with people who study either intelligence services, they've kind of brought in a more balanced opinion of like why secrecy is needed, which is hard for me. Cause like I said, I'm a JFK guy, the documents I want them, but they're like secrecy. I'm like, uh, so that's a hard thing for me. But I also understand it just like I think we spoke on the phone about William Colby when they had the two people that were telling him like, hey, don't divulge all the secrets during the whole church committee stuff because we might have people that are in overseas and they might be at risk if you you know, give out too much information because our enemies will have access to that information much like they have access to documents, which to me creates a more balanced perspective that not every single person is willing to hear, and I'm the type that's like, I believe that there is a balance here, and we need to understand what that balance is.
1: Yeah, I love the fact that you're broaching this issue and you know, using the word balance. Um, I myself have spent 16 years as a professional in the US intelligence community, uh, over a decade at CIA, and then five years approximately at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. So I certainly have uh, an understanding and appreciation, and, uh, you know, I provided federal service in the pursuit of helping protect our national security. At the same time, my academic training and part of my professional life is as an international attorney, including work in international human rights and international humanitarian law. So I am very attuned to some of these considerations, whether they're, you know, the Geneva Convention provisions that ended up coming into play in the Supreme Court case regarding Mr. Hamdan and the uh, interrogation techniques that were utilized against him and others. So I follow those legal issues a lot. The You use the word ethical, and that's a really tricky word uh, because ethics aren't the same as laws. And we are a society governed by democratic politics. And I say that small d, not Republican versus Democrat, but the concept of democracy ruled by the people. So we have an elected legislature in Congress an elected president who conduct our government affairs. Um, and we follow the law. So we're in a very multicultural society with people with very different ethnic backgrounds, uh, religious tenets, And to say that we're gonna adopt a single set or any individual person's you know, morals or ethics is tough. So we tend to talk about covert action and US government activities, turn to the law instead. Now the law is infused by ethical considerations, but it's actually the text of the laws that matter, not a specific religious text or something else, which is not a part of our official government documentation. So the other way ethics come into play is when you have professionals, like for example, I am a member of the bar, uh, a professional attorney, so I have ethics oversight groups who uh, I would be responsible to if I breached the professional ethics of my specific discipline, same way a doctor has professional ethics or other professions might. Uh, So I've taught on the issue of ethics, but I just want to make it clear that when we're talking about what the government should or should not be doing, that is appropriately the realm of law, not ethics. Now ethics can inform legal considerations and other things. I, at least once in my career, personally recused myself from an activity because it was not consistent with my personal ethics. And there was plenty of other work to do. So I was, I happily worked on other projects in defense of the national security. But, you know, where I was personally conflicted out of my personal morality, I said, can I leave that for someone else to do? Can I work on other things? Uh, But that would be very different than saying, here's a law, I choose to follow it or not follow it. I didn't have that choice, right? Uh, As a government employee. So, you know, what ethical considerations should come into play? Well, there are issues like who should be permitted to do things? Should it be the federal government? Should it be CIA? Should it be DOD or Department of Defense? Should it be anybody that the president names to go off and do a covert action? Okay, who? Then there's the question of what? Uh, Even in the world of covert action, there are certain things that we allegedly don't do. Section 211 of the executive order that I referenced earlier, Actually prohibits assassinations. And in a really clear, simple sentence, it says, the US government should not be participating in assassinations. Now you can look back at history and ask yourself, did we possibly do things that someone else's definition of assassination might qualify? You know, uh, it's been stated that the Osama bin Laden raid was a capture operation that, when he resisted, turned into a kill operation that that was not necessarily the initial or primary objective. Historians can debate that. Uh, I'm also thinking of the January 2020 uh, Baghdad airport raid under President Trump that killed Qassam Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force of Iran. Now, in that one, if you're looking for legal explanations, you could say it was happened in a the theater of conflict and that because of Quds Force's support to militants uh, opposing the Iraqi government and allied forces in the area that you know you could try to construe him as a combatant in a theater of war, in which case he would be a casualty of war if he was a combatant rather than a targeted assassination. So you know I could make arguments, try to build up the straw man on either side, but are there ethical considerations? Absolutely. you know we ultimately we saw this not in a direct covert action sense, but in some of the you know national security operations that have happened in the last 20, 30 years, we've seen some of them go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, again, the Hamdan case that I mentioned, you actually had the U.S. Supreme Court stating that Common Article Three of the Geneva Conventions and from international treaty law was an applicable part of U.S. law and it had not been complied with the human rights of that individual detainee during the interrogation processes. So when we talk about ethics that we're gonna impose, as a matter of u s government policy, I like to keep us talking about the law. If people want to infuse the law with certain moral or ethical standards, I think that's wonderful, and we have a legislative process whereby their elected representatives can propose bills, vote on them, and then the executive you know signs them into law. so that's a really important distinction to me uh, but now, if we get in an academic mindset, the I think there are ethics about what we should be doing as civilized humans and how we want to run our society. Uh, and that's something we can debate and talk at ad nauseum as well. But I just have to drop the footnote. Those are going to be, you know, Sean or Robbie's personal opinions or the religious tenets as proposed by a specific theological group rather than the rules, the actual laws that our federal government would adhere to.
0: Now, are those laws up the, there?
1: I've been babbling for a while. Feel free to pull any of those strings or take us a different direction.
0: When, when it comes into the laws, though, what like could you define Like, if it's an interrogation and it violates some laws? I guess the Geneva Convention laws. But I, I'm just curious, Like, are the laws solidified where you can't just bend them? Because I notice this even with regular documents that I would come across for like if it was a court case that I was going up against or something like that. It's everything's in legal speak, which is like, did I win or did I lose? I got to know. So I'm curious if the laws are kind of bendable and flexible to a point where they could be technically it looks like it is, but it's actually not because it was this way. I only get that information because looking through the Watergate stuff, eventually the FBI and CIA found ways that they could just word things that could get past Congress, which is not violating an issue. It's just wording it in a different manner if they're going to get something passed or something done. So it's not lying, which I try and tell people. I was like, when you say they did this, I was like, technically, they're not lying. They really didn't do that, but they just worded it differently, and they made it into something else. They can create their own, whole new thing about it. So it's not them breaking that law that you're mentioning. It's just kind of being – I wouldn't say a dick, but it's kind of being – Eh, You know, like there's a big thing for me ethically, personally, I would be like, that's a problem. But then also if you're speaking from a legal standpoint, it's like you got nothing. So there's nothing you can get them on. So it's like having that, which, like I said, I know it's not a lot of people don't have that perspective on things, which is why I respect your perspective, because you have that opportunity to be able to have kind of like a balance from a law point and also from an intelligence point.
1: So, there's a legal principle that goes as far back in Anglo American legal traditions, at least as far back as the Magna Carta at Runnymede in England, of being put on notice, okay, before you could be charged with crimes or accused of things. And we've continued that tradition forward, you know, many centuries and into the American legal political system that you can't be convicted of a crime that isn't written down, right? You have to know the rules of the society especially at least in the criminal context. You can't be held accountable for something that you haven't been told you're not allowed to do. Uh, you know ex post facto laws is one of the places where that shows up in the uh, US Constitution that you can't make laws after the fact and hold someone responsible for them. So in yeah, I'm speaking a little circuitously around your question, but you know, in my mind, that essence there of how specific or precise is the law or what can it be applied, that burden is actually on the legislature, if you ask me, or on the executive branch to specify things. I've already referenced the no assassination clause. That one's written pretty clearly. There aren't, it's one sentence, I believe. It's not, you know, three paragraphs with all kinds of exceptions and nuances. Uh the debate there is just going to be what is the English language definition of assassination, or someone is going to try to, you know, interpret or misconstrue the facts of a scenario to show that the factual elements of assassination are not met, right? Uh, on other things, you talk about is there wiggle room for CIA or someone else to, you know, misinterpret things? Well, again, it depends on how specific the laws are written. And in many cases in our society where you cannot remove all ambiguity from a legal rule, it ends up going to our third branch of government, the judiciary, for interpretation. And again, in the Hamdan case, that's actually what happened, right? The question was, were these enhanced interrogation techniques that were being utilized acceptable under the military manuals and the intelligence provisions? Or were they inappropriate because they had crossed a line? And we ended up, went to the highest judicial body in our nation, who interpreted the meaning of the Geneva Convention language, and who looked at the factual scenario that had played out in the detention facility, and they ultimately interpreted it to mean that the law of the Geneva Convention had been violated. So. I don't think you're ever going to have perfect clear-cut objectivity. I think in some cases you can have, you know, a pretty good sense, but it's inevitable that some of these issues will be resolved after the fact. Now, that is no consolation to people who suffer or are victims of human rights violations at the time. All I can say is even an ex post review where our society comes together and says something was acceptable to happen or something should not have happened, that's better than not holding that hearing at all after the fact, right? In a perfect world, in a perfect you know, theological world, we want this all done beforehand. There are gonna be some very difficult situations that arise in the world that may not be perfectly dealt with at the time. I do feel you know, very positive about the fact that in our country, we often look at them after the fact even when we weren't able to before the fact. And and the last thing that's relevant here, too, is a lot of times these trials occur two, three, five years after the events in question, by the time they actually get to the Supreme Court or elsewhere. We've learned a lot more about the facts of the scenario by then, too. you got to remember, at certain times when certain actions are happening, you're in the fog of war, you're in the heat of conflict, the individuals have limited information, inaccurate or incomplete information, and and they're making life and death decisions right you you know we teach laws of armed conflict and international law in classrooms in ivory tower law schools to experience you know by professors and teaching them to you know academic law students how do you actually implement the laws of war it's 18 and 19 year olds holding a rifle who are afraid for their life who are actually making those decisions where the actions occur. Now hopefully they've been trained well, hopefully they're supervised by lawful and ethical uh, senior military officers, right? But where the rubber meets the road is very different than sitting with a textbook, you know, in a beautiful classroom.
0: You think people would have a different reaction to some type of methods of breaking the Geneva Convention if that person was like an actual bad person, like someone who massacres a bunch of people? And then you talk about breaking interrogation rules or something like that. I feel like the public would be less caring about that.
1: Right. And those are ethical and moral things. Uh, And, you know, the perfect example from modern history is, you know, if you had the opportunity, would you have assassinated Adolf Hitler?
0: Yeah, the church committee back in the. The 70s talked about that. I saw that it was a message. Yeah, but it's, a, it's, it's an
1: iconic, simple example from social and moral philosophy, right?
0: It's out of a movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, again, you have the question between consequentialism. We're going to get a little philosophical here. Forgive me. I don't know if this is common for your podcast, but you have a philosophical theory of utilitarianism or consequentialism, which is, you know, what what are the? It's a results-oriented thing. Okay, the ends can justify the means. If you need to kill one to save ten you save nine lives, right? Or, uh, Immanuel Kant, in his deontic philosophy, had a very different approach of, you can't use other human beings as mere instrumentalities. You have to respect their human dignity, and there are certain things you can't do with or to other people, even if the resulting outcome might be for the greater good. You've gotta go find another way that ensures their dignity, saves your own humanity, because otherwise you're on a really slippery slope to chaos. Okay? And let's 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 pull the thread you offered. You're probably going to find most people in the world who would have been willing to pull the trigger on Adolf Hitler with his horrific genocidal and, you know, other expansionist policies and all the harm he was doing. But if we roll that back, right? And you find other world leaders, sometimes these people are going to be viewed as freedom fighters and saviors by one group and they're going to be viewed as terrorists by others okay uh one you don't have to look that far back in history to see some of these different views I mean look at the life history of Nelson Mandela for example okay if you go back and you look at his early political activities and then you compare it with his leadership activities as a head of state down the road I mean he had a I'll just say a fascinating career from start to finish that spanned a wide array of activities. And ethically, people might have had very different views about some of his activities at different points in his life. Now, you can argue that the end of apartheid was essential from a humanitarian basis, and that maybe the various means he used along the way did justify the end, or maybe the end did justify the means along the way. But it's really tough when we talk about ethics and morals, and include it in the conversation of military action or assassination or other things, because... Certain ethics and morals are open to debate between different groups, and that's why we have laws. We live in a society where we acknowledge that the law is what we live by. You may go to a mosque, you may go to a temple, your neighbor may go to a church, and you may have slightly different theological and ethical beliefs, but you've all agreed to live under a certain social contract, and that's governed by the laws
0: there's um Alan Dulles if you know, if you've probably heard that name more than once but yeah there's a lot of things and i think when you look from like his perspective based on the evidence we know and the things he told people and then compare it to the public's perspective of just reading the history on what he was involved in. They're different, but the way he's looking at it, and I'm pretty sure a lot of these people in these intelligence agencies that had to pull these hard actions were that I have to do what's right, or I have to do what's hard to save the country that I love. You know, it's a different perspective. It's like talking to a grandparent who's been to the war. They're not thinking about it as a human being on the other side. They're thinking about this is the enemy, and I got to get do anything I got to possibly do to get back home.
1: And this is where, in real time, the decisions some of these leaders are. Combatant commanders are faced with are horrible. It's so easy for us to do a podcast twenty years later. No disrespect to you. It's so easy for me to teach a class with a you know a reading list and a syllabus ten years after an event. Okay. Imagine if you're there watching the drone footage of a high value target who you know has perpetrated uh, terrorist attacks with dozens of innocent civilians killed in the past. You know they are planning a new attack. You have just identified their location, except they're in a marketplace with other people's innocent civilians shopping around them. You're now in a horrible you know, philosophy final exam where you're trying to balance a certain number of innocents in the market compared with how many innocents this person may kill in their next intended attack, right? And who are you to play God or gods choosing which innocent people get to die? Or are you of a belief that you can't even permit any collateral damage because that would be, you know, an uncontian measure that, you know, didn't treat the dignity of that girl in the shopping market appropriately just because she, through fate and no action of herself happens to be next to an Al-Qaeda terrorist or an, an ISIS militant, right? And the problem is you have about 30 seconds to make that decision before the potential target will go back into a concrete building and you don't know where they are. And you may never see them again. That that's the reality of this stuff. And so it's it's very worthwhile for us to discuss it as academic or political conversations, but in many cases, these really, really
0: tough decisions are made in real time with imperfect information. And that's why it's so difficult. There's do you think like you know about MK Ultra, but do you think that like it would I wouldn't have the feelings I have towards it? I think it was horrible and it shouldn't have been done. But um if they were just consented people that they used, like Anybody that said, yeah, I'll sign up for this experiment thing. I'll do this and sign up. They could have did that, but they didn't. And there was like unwitted civilians and people that were dosed with drugs. And yeah, for, for the
1: benefit of your audience, you want to give a couple an MK Ultra, please, just so they know exactly what you're talking about.
0: I just I just did. Um, you're you've glitched and froze but it's they MKUltra was a drug testing program and they do the documentation you can see that the lsd was used on unwitting civilians and that's in the church committee report of that now depending on what documentation that we have on mk ultra because a lot of that stuff was destroyed as well too but there's a bunch of stuff like joy on west and a bunch of things that started going on where you're dosing americans that did not have any consent in there where i go that's the horrible part that's the unethical part for me that's the moral where i say no you could have just asked people and got people to sign up for for it and i know who's going to take lsd i guarantee you there's people out there that would have been signed up immediately for that it sounds nuts but a hundred percent
1: oh man that's hilarious robbie uh and i think i agree with you on both points Uh, on the substantive one uh, I my personal morals, my personal interpretation of the law, and I think where the law is very explicit today, is that the intelligence community is not supposed to be performing uh, foreign intelligence operations against U.S. civilians here at home. And I think uh, very clearly that uh, providing people uh, chemical substances without their knowledge or consent is also uh, you know not to be done off limits. Uh, And again, I actually concur in your humorous point that, yeah, I probably would not have had to look too far to find people who would be willing to get free hallucinogens and be monitored by someone with a clipboard.
0: It sounds dumb, but it's like, I I mean, it just, I guarantee you there's a bunch of people out there that would have signed up for that during that time period. Now, what extent do those experiments go into? I don't know, but I've looked at a lot of like auditory and the stuff that they did, the light stuff, not the stuff that's super extreme. But it's the unwitting part for me that really, I think, draws in the the really – cloud on that part which i go if these aren't like checked and if we don't find out about these in real time which is why there's such an importance of oversight that i think is that because that you can keep going in this manner for a really long time like i've come across against documents about interrogation documents about like Ninsenko during the jfk stuff and they're like revive stuff from the old rockefeller commission which is like lsd interrogations and all that type of stuff and i'm like okay well if you're reading that in a document 20 30 years later it's going to come off really, really bad. But I'm also curious who is Nosanko, and then you got to look at his background and see what they were viewing him as and what they had him on, which makes it start to have a little bit more sense. But also my biggest question, that whole ethical concern right there is you're saying revive things from the Rockefeller Commission, which means is it something that you guys dropped off that you have been – it says that we're not doing this anymore, and you're like, let's pick this back up because we need the information. That's my question because I know that's going to get broad-brushed on some onto some other things. And I don't know what those other things are going to be, which is a big concern for me, which I think is like another legal thing, which needs to come in of like, you can't just choose, hey, we're going to dust that back off from the 40s and bring that back out. You can't do that. If we deemed it wrong back then, we still have those viewpoints now, depending on who the person is.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we bump back up here again with the concept of national security imperative and it it viewed as an existential threat. You know, a lot of the stuff from the 20th century, we we're talking about there was a fear of communism as an existential threat to the U.S. constitutional order and our way of government and our way of life, and some extraordinary measures were taken. Uh, again, I think some extraordinary measures were taken in the war on terrorism, and again, it was viewed as another you know, existential concern of what could be happening to our nation and our constitutional way of life. As a lawyer, as an international lawyer, I'm also familiar with many, many of the international treaties, which have, I call them the out clause, where you know, one of the last articles of these treaties is often that none of these rules apply in a na- if the nation involved says it's a national security emergency. We see that often as a uh, a compromise provision in a lot of human rights treaties that guarantee a bunch of rights, but then there's a final clause that says, you know, if you're in a condition of national security emergency or martial law, you can abridge these rights, you know, for the time being. doesn't tell you how long the president can say their country is in a crisis or whatever. But I think that's what you saw in the 20th century with the fear of communism. I think it's what you saw with the enhanced interrogation techniques, a genuine concern about uh, the safety of innocent individuals and people making very hard, they thought they were making balanced choices to in a consequentialist mindset, I'm going to do something that I wouldn't do under ordinary terms. It's not something I actually probably want to do. However, I'm going to do it because I think it's going to save my country or it's going to save a bunch of, you know, men, women, and children, innocent people down the road. Uh, what I find equally interesting is the gradations of who gets which protections. Right? In our legal order in the United States, there are u- things called U.S. persons. Those are going to be citizens, they're going to be certain legal residents, they're going to be certain corporations or companies that are organized under the laws of the United States, and those things all get a super high level of protection. But then we also have the question of, under the basic rules of human rights law and other provisions, what safeguards do we owe to innocent civilians who are not U.S. persons, who are citizens of, fill in the name of a country, right? Are they the citizens of India? Are they the citizens of Romania? Paraguay, right, what what protections and uh, rights and dignities do you have to respect of theirs? Uh, and then, of course, there are people, what people have forfeited those rights uh, as combatants who can be killed on the battlefield, but if they're taken as prisoners of war, have to be treated in a certain way. And then is there a last category of people who aren't even entitled to prisoner of war status, and are there any basal human ethical considerations that have to be guaranteed to them, okay? And that's some of the stuff that the Geneva Conventions get into, you know, what are, how do you treat prisoners of war and what are some of the rights that anyone has to be guaranteed, even if they're not qualifying for the, you know, military protections as a military combatant for the prisoner of war status. Uh, it, it, it is, I mean, hopefully the one thing that your audience is going to get out of this is what often seem like simple black and white issues are incredibly nuanced, and they're incredibly difficult to analyze thoroughly in real time, especially when you think someone is trying to kill you or kill other innocent people, and you have to make a very quick military or policy decision. Uh, I don't envy the folks who have to make those decisions. I've seen some of them made during my government time, and uh, I usually appreciated the difficulty of the scenario. Uh, I will say, though, at least in the U.S. government context, I have overall been impressed with the political and the military leadership and what I'll say is how often they get it right. How often they do follow international humanitarian law or the laws of armed conflict as they're listed in the military manuals or how often the you know government members assembled in the situation room at the White House at a national security council meeting actually do discuss considerations like we're discussing right here as they're considering or planning an operation. Uh, There are ethics officers and uh, general counsels, the legal officers, in most of the intelligence community uh, organizations. I think it's actually all of them. Uh, I know in ones I worked in, we even had civil liberties and privacy rights officers who looked not only at, you know, specific individuals, but also at, you know, the civil rights and privacy principles of the United States writ large. Uh, So there definitely is an awareness and an effort to be compliant. Uh, I would just say we're humans, we're fallible, and in very difficult situations, things may not always occur perfectly. And of course, those become the things we talk about in podcasts or that we hold congressional committees about or that we make movies about, right? Not many people are going to rush to see the blockbuster where the ethics officer, in a flashy red tie, runs into the meeting and shows a Geneva Convention paragraph, and the military commander goes, you know what, you're right. And then they waited another day to do the cruise missile strike. Okay? That's not what Hollywood wants to show. But you know what? Those happen.
0: I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that are patriots of the government and everything that will say things if you're criticizing what the government does in past programs, which I think that you know they have their obviously perspectives and I understand it. You know, Having a balanced perspective on this isn't easy, especially the number of people that focus into the subjects I like to talk about happen to be a little bit more on the left side, which is like, are you defending them? It's like, I'm not defending. I'm just trying to have a really kind of look at it from both sides type deal. It's not a very favorable perspective to have. You kind of have to choose one. So when I see someone – like if I talk about the Fred Hampton assassination or something and someone goes, how dare you talk about the FBI in this manner? I'm like, well, I also know a sense of right and wrong, and there are probably faults on both sides of things. But when I'm looking from an overall critical standpoint, like in my opinion, I don't think names of certain government officials should be redacted from certain documents. And I know that is a, we can debate about this, but I just go, I just see it from much like how they're thinking of future problems that are going to arise. I'm thinking of how many future operations are you going to be involved in if your damn name's not in the damn document? If you're liable for your name being in it, you're going to be less likely to want to be a part of that project. I guarantee you there's probably some names in MKUltra that would not have wanted to be involved if they knew their name was going to be public and published.
1: But I, I love where you're going with the bit about, You know, we want to air both perspectives or however many perspectives there are on these issues. I don't care if you're a leftist or rightist. I think it's important to read history. I think it's important to look at the facts and consider them. I think it's important to discuss it. Uh, I'm going to offer you two little examples that I'm incredibly pleased with our political society about that at first sound like they're ridiculous. if you haven't already seen it, please go back and watch the Senate confirmation hearings for John Brennan as he was nominated to become the Director of Central Intelligence. Okay? They're in a room in Congress and there are it's open to the public and there are people in the front rows of the gallery who are screaming epithets at the nominee who's being you know, questioned by the members of the oversight committees for his fitness to have the job, and on no less than three occasions, the chairwoman, uh, you know, has to pound her gavel and restore order to the room, and eventually, at some point, the Capitol Police uh, remove a couple of the people because they were literally screaming profanity and getting so physically active, they were disruptive to the event. Now, you know what I thought was beautiful about that? Number one, the top spy chief had to be questioned by the democratically elected officials before he could get a job. That's wonderful. Secondly, that it was televised that the citizens of the country could see this happening. Third, that people were allowed to be in the room and heckling him. I mean, can you imagine this happening in China or Stalinist Russia? First of all, the, there'll be no democratic oversight. Secondly, it wouldn't be televised. And third, if you yelled a profane word at that person, you'd have some really serious legal issues. You'd probably find yourself in a gulag. And then lastly, the folks who were escorted out of the room because they were being so disruptive, you know what happened to them? They went home. I mean, that, to me, is a great example of democracy in action and rule of law, okay? And I once gave a speech out at an event in Las Vegas that's known for being a very counterculture event, and this is while I was still in government in the intelligence community, and uh, let's just say a very, very left-leaning crowd, who many of whom partook in substances even before a lot of the states had liberalized it, uh, many of them who were anti-government. Uh, I was speaking to the crowd, and I talked to them about some people in uniform and some people in three-letter agencies who did not share any of their political beliefs, okay, other than one, freedom of speech and freedom of association, okay, a couple of them. And I said, do you realize there are people out there who disagree with everything you're saying but are currently risking their lives to protect your right to say it? And that sort of resonated a little bit with the audience. I said, you know what? I may or may not agree with what you people have done earlier today or what you're going to do later on tonight or how you're going to vote next week. But my job is to protect this country and protect your right to do all of that. Not to decide. My role is not to decide whether you're a good or a bad person or how you should vote. My job is to protect the constitutional order we've all agreed to. Such that you have the right to protest. Right. And I actually, someone was heckling me, yelling at me for the nice. So I said, please come up here. It seems like you have something to say. I'm going to give you 30 seconds of my time. Here's the microphone. Tell everyone else what you want to say, because this is actually what I've dedicated a decade of my life to protecting. And the person couldn't believe it. I said, No, I'm really serious. You have a you have 60 seconds. My mic is yours. For you. and, but when you talk about young people who haven't studied history, and I'm not picking on young people, right? It, one thing you do learn over time is you learn more about history, partly because you've learned some, you've lived some of it, uh, is to understand that most things are gray, not black and white, and to realize how difficult certain decisions are, and to realize that dialogue and reason and thoughtfulness are really the best way forward. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have strong views, right? But you will be more effective in them if you actually understand the context within which you're operating. And towards that end, I do believe history is a valuable thing to study, to learn things we want to avoid, to learn other things that we'd like to repeat or to figure out new paths. So forgive me for a little bit of a diatribe there, but I feel so strongly about this. I believe in government that isn't hyper-political. Okay, and there's a place for politicians, but in the part of the government I was in, I didn't show up as a Republican, a Democrat, an independent. I showed up as an intelligence officer, and my obligation was to inform the president and Congress as accurately as I could. And we have people in uniform whose sole objective is to implement the commander-in-chief's orders as best as possible. And they do that job very well.
0: Okay. Do you think that like in some of those cases, like, I mean, I I would have to date this back with just history, but like unethical things for me, like I'm not a tear it up government guy at all. I'm not that at all. I'm a patriot at heart. But I just believe in correcting things as well, too. When I say correcting, I mean just looking at things I would deem unethical or things that could be justified by most of the public as unethical, even people in the services, for instance, like MKUltra, like I used. But also, if you look at the FBI website and they've openly published this about their communications with Walt Disney… Starts off very basic. It's so simple where it's like, we're just going to have FBI agents and Mickey Mouse cartoons so the kids can get used to I'm okay with that. That's fine. That does not bother me one bit. But then at the ending, you're ratting out people that are striking up labor unions, because calling them communists and having them basically like – you know, broad brush with this brush of communism and I get it, the hype of communism but also look at our propaganda machine back then and I'm sure every country was doing it but this fear of the Red Scare, the influence in the movies and there's still influence in the movies today, the DOD, like $500,000 or something like that that was exposed for, I forgot what movie script it was but it was like, I don't, like the propaganda shit is like, that I don't believe in that I can't stand with, that I don't justify and I get like their small scale stuff but when you kind of look at like the history with film, even J. Edgar Hoover's FBI invasion into hollywood you know you start questioning like is your reality your reality and when i say that is when i think of mob figures were they essentially really bad guys or in the fbi were these amazing elite figures that come in i'm not justifying the mob but then i find out they have a relationship with the cia and i go okay well you shook hands with the devil then if the films are correct and now you're telling me this where i'm saying it's giving mixed messages Which is when I start relating to the people of the public who start saying they want to tear down the government. I don't agree with them at all, and people do put their life on the line for the freedom of speech stuff. But it's like all this type of stuff, the closed-door testimonies, and I get secrecy. I understand that. But the education and lack of education, I can't tell you what the CIA is actually doing, the FBI is actually doing, the DOD is actually doing, or any of the other agency letters that I barely – I probably don't even know the acronyms for. Is that – I mean they're doing their job? Sure, secrecy. I understand that. But the fact that people are so disconnected from what these agencies are doing, and maybe for a good reason, but to understand that there's also a real thing that happens when you start not knowing where the boundaries are. Is when you get stuck in an echo chamber of doing bad, such as projects like MKUltra and things we know in the past, and nobody corrects you, that's why the church committee is so important – is because you start keep going and going and going and nobody's checking you. And that's like my whole thing, which is like can I just get a second church committee to figure out what you guys are actually doing? We don't have to publish any, you know, budgets like they they didn't do that in the original church committee, but I'm very curious to like what is going on? Like just how are you guys thinking? Cuz a heart attack gun is insane. And I'm fascinated by it but also academic CIA influence on academic campuses, I kind of have an issue with as well too. And I'm sure a lot of people will share those views.
1: All right. So you got a lot there. Let me pull it. Let me pull a couple of those points. First under current U S law and policy, the intelligence community is not permitted to do psychological operations or perception management campaigns against the U S civilian populace. They are not supposed to be infiltrating the clergy. They are not supposed to be infiltrating academia and doing that. Now, Can a CIA officer write a publication, publish it in a journal, and list himself or herself as a CIA officer author? Yes. Okay. But are they supposed to be clandestinely doing PSYOPs such that the recipient or student of the information doesn't know where it's originating? No, that's not supposed to be happening today. Second comment, nothing is perfect. We live in a fallible world, and there are people who breach their duties and obligations. I don't need to go that far into history to find people like Aldrich Ames, uh, Robert Hansen, who absolutely violated the rules and uh, strictures of their jobs. Uh, you know, we call them traitors. They were responsible for the deaths of many people, et cetera, et cetera. So I would be, you know, naive if I pretended that there haven't been bad eggs in the three-letter agencies over time. I think the majority are good. I think there are occasional ones who you know stray the down the very wrong path. Um, lastly, due to secrecy and the need to keep certain things confidential, it's not possible to fully inform every single member of the populace. That's also not the way our government is set up. We are not a direct democracy. We are a Berkey and representative democracy where you have elected officials who speak and govern on your behalf. So my answer would be: you, Robbie, may not. You know, have direct information about CIA operations, but Congress should. And Congress does, except in extremely, very rare instances where only the Gang of Eight, a select group of leadership and intelligence community chairpersons and minority leaders in the two houses, are informed. And almost always, it's prior information, except in extreme circumstances where they can be notified you know, as soon as possible after an action has been taken, a covert action has been taken. So uh, I can't pretend, and I'm not gonna pretend that you will ever know everything those places are doing. Uh, most people working in them don't know everything the place is doing. They only know their you know, need to know eyes only section of what they're doing. Uh, but I do believe more so than any other country on the planet, we have democratic oversight of our intelligence community. Does that mean it's perfect? No. We see that with some after-the-fact things like the 9/11 Commission or the Church committees and you know, various commissions and committees over time. But again, I'm glad those happen after the fact rather than never happening at all. You know, it's it, it's a second-best answer, but it's good that when we think we, you know, wandered from the path, that then we have a recalibration moment with a very substantial commission. But on a regular operating basis, your congressional representatives have a decent idea of what's going on.
0: I don't necessarily think that I agree with the congressional people that are getting the information. I don't necessarily know if they're not looking at a blind eye to certain things. You know, it's interesting to me when the UN sends puts out a letter saying that the DAG Hammershaw death, I think it was in twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen, they were looking into just with cases of Alan Dulles and Patrice Lumumba which I just think is like, that's, uh, like I said, that's an issue. Where's the justice on that one? Where's the investigation on that one? I have no freaking clue. And neither do any of the reporters I've talked to who've made books about Dag Hammarskjold. So like, that's the thing is like, do we carry it to the end? Do we actually go and find out the answer to it? Or does it get dropped off at some point? I guess that's more of a congressional thing that I would be looking at, but it's that type of thinking that I think the public should be at least aware about. And I also think it should be taught in a more balanced perspective. You don't catch that in any of these education systems, any of the schools that are teaching any courses like this, at least And the basic public education, not talking about a college where you go and get a class and all that. And I've talked to people in the intelligence communities. They're very patriotic towards the intelligence community. That's fine. It helps me create the balanced perspective that I have. But I'm like really kind of like when it comes to I know not catching the church committee is should be basic reading for every American. I mean, just but it's taught in a way. it, It
1: should be modern American history required reading. Absolutely agree.
0: It should be taught in a way where people understand like this does not mean that, oh, God, we got to go burn down the CIA. It just means we need to understand that. And that comes from my knowledge of other historians who studied Unit 731, who have studied other places where they've done horrible things in other countries. And you realize everybody's got a gun pointed to each other's head. That's how you get the balanced perspective. Like I said, I'm not like a liberal. I'm not a leftist. I'm not any of that type of stuff. And I'm not a right. I'm just kind of looking at it from like a right and wrong scenario. Primary
1: document review is incredible. Incredibly important, and again, looking at everything from all these perspectives, I, I think you could probably tell, and your audience could probably tell that I'm a patriot. I was a public servant, but I am also a die-hard human rights attorney. Right? Uh, one of my co-professors and I we taught a class, and for one of our in-class exercises, we did a simulated international criminal court proceeding of a fictitious U.S. military leader. Basically saying under international law standards, has the U.S. violated international law? A few of our students were the prosecution, a few of our students were the defense team, and we let them hash it out, right? To me, these are legitimate
0: questions to be asking. It's uh, – I don't know how much you know about the Manson trial. Oh, I have to ask this question for you, but it's just,
1: – Just pop culture. I've never studied it or looked into it closely.
0: It's always my example when I ask like a really tough moral question that probably people would not give the answer for where I go, do you think Manson should have been to jail? I do. I think he was nuts, but I do not agree under the circumstances that he went to jail for. And that's because Vincent Bugulosi, and this is exposed. It's on Law Justica. You can look up this uh, file as well. too. So they committed perjury during the Manson trial. They put a prosecutor on the defendant's team to sabotage the court case. So like he, he's nuts 100 percent. But if you can't – like people can't morally get to defending or talking about that where I go, I just speak on the rights of – as a citizen, you have a right so to a fair trial. So you had a problem with the
1: procedural violations. Again, I'm do lawyers speak here. You had a problem with the procedural violations, even though you ultimately believed in the uh, inclusion guilt of the uh individual. And again, let's be very clear: being nuts or mentally ill is not, not grounds yeah. to be criminally prosecuted. It is grounds to be put into a health facility to protect yourself and others from you. So, I actually believe that. Mr. Manson, is my personal view, was mentally ill and needed to be in a restricted mental health facility to protect him and other people from himself. Uh, but I think what you were getting at is you were happy to see that he was um, – its the word I'm looking for? Taken out of circulation such that he couldn't harm other people, but you thought there were procedural errors. In the court proceeding,
0: it has to be done ethically and right. Like you can't just—I mean—he is an American. You can't arrest somebody for being nuts. But I mean, prostitution charges, drug charges, all the things that they could have charged him on, you know. But they waited till after the killings and stuff, which is just interesting. But it's the really the the sabotaging of that trial to make sure you 100% got your verdict is the ethical part. And when I get to that point, mostly people would circle and like, they usually jump on you, like, are you defending Manson? It's like, I'm not doing that at all. But I'm just saying, as an American or as a citizen here, you have rights, and those are your rights, at, and that's what I respect more than anything. And that's, well, like, you the actually, one I mean, thing for a, me.
1: You're in good company there, Robbie, because there's a very famous person who's made a career out of that. You may have heard of the Harvard Law School professor, Alan Dershowitz. Who argues constitutional law cases, usually on procedural matters of illegal searches and seizures and other matters. Uh, And he's, you know, many times during his career says, you know, my role here is not in this matter judging the ultimate rightness or wrongness or facts of what someone did or didn't do. I am trying to protect the constitutional rights of all people by making sure. Illegal searches and seizures aren't the basis upon which someone gets incarcerated, right? And you know, if you're not familiar with his
0: work, I invited him on the show. I have, I know you're talking about, it, yeah.
1: I was once a student of his, and again, I don't necessarily agree with everything he's said or written, but interacting with him over time, I came to appreciate his perspective. That if you, uh here's a great one. Uh, You know, the Martin Luther King quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. If you can't do proper procedure against someone you want to see incarcerated, oh my gosh, where are we if we don't have procedure with someone who's actually innocent? Okay, so, and again, it's a tricky matter, but there are people who share your view that procedure matters, (laughs) not just whether or not we think someone's guilty or not.
0: Look, I mean, selling drugs is a quick way to get money, but making it through a hard-earned living or business living is the right way to do it. So it's kind of like this – you know, I wouldn't say conflict, but it's really that question, which is like the immediate process of getting what you want or working the hard way and getting the satisfaction when it finally pays off. I mean that's kind of the boat I stand, which is like I just want things to be done properly and really followed by it, like no rule bending, no kind of going over, changing the names of stuff like – Typically, people know what they're doing if they have to change a name to something, and I get it. Look, I understand secrecy is needed. I understand, like I said, but it when it's explained in this manner, I feel like people understand it better. Like even with the Manson stuff and things of that sort, they kind of understand it as a whole instead of going on their quick emotional reaction to be like either tear up the government or I got to protect the government. It's really just kind of trying to find there's a healthy balance in between so we can stop the bickering and fighting on certain things, and then it just causes more issues down the road. We are in a huge divide and the country political lies and it's like it doesn't i mean things get blamed on left things get blamed on the right and everyone thinks that their guy's gonna solve it and i don't think that's necessarily true i just think you have to look at more constitutional things, things that we should all be agreeing upon, but we can't even have the conversation about. But I also might be in the unpopular, but that's fine. I'm 25. I'm not making any rules or laws or any shit like that. So that's good. So, and I would never say that. I don't even think I would want to be in a position for that. You know, I've talked to like superhero historians and I've talked to any topic you name on my show, but the one thing that relates to this in the superhero world is like, if you had superpowers and you caught a bad guy, would you take him to jail or would you just throw him out a window knowing he's going to break out and come after your family? It's a crap question, but it's a really moral one where it's like, yeah, do you want to risk your family's life or do you want to take out the villain? And when you kind of look at it like that, I mean, there's a lot of things you can analyze in movies that have like the same kind of story to it. But if that's the same question we're asking here, do you look at this person and you know what's going to happen or you think this is what's going to happen? If you ask someone about regime change or anything overseas, and they go, yeah, because that guy's a bad guy. Okay, well, I mean, so you just not want it here? It can't be both. What what are you talking about here? You kind of have to ask these questions like, oh, it's okay if it doesn't bother you, but if it goes overseas and you don't see it, it's not a problem. It's weird how we draw those lines, and a lot of people do have those lines, but they'll never admit to it.
1: Uh, I've been listening intently, and I actually think you've been very articulate in what you've been saying the last few minutes, uh, I'll say with the possible exception of superheroes throwing people outside of windows, I'm not going to comment on that one. But your discussion of the you know the need for balance, the need for information, and for folks to be informed, I think that's very astute. And uh, don't take this as patronizing, but especially for younger members of our society who are going to continue to be the voices of our society and the leadership, whether you choose to seek political office or work through a media platform. Uh, This has been a truly delightful conversation. I I just realized uh, what seemed like a 15-minute fun conversation. We've already done an hour, and I could go on for another hour, and I'd be more than delighted to come back and talk to you another day. Uh, But for our audience, today is Memorial Day, and I am going to head into town here in a couple minutes to celebrate those members of our armed forces who gave the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be sitting here doing podcasts like this and talking about the future of the Constitution. So,
0: Sean, uh, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links?
1: uh, I have a fairly uh, unusual name. Someone can just Google my name or whatever search engine you prefer, and if you're interested in more of my work, it comes up pretty easily just because I have an unusual name. So that's Uh K-A-N-U-C-K.
0: And I'll uh, link any links that I find when I Google your name in the description. But I appreciate the time. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank